Thank you for that worship. I, I really needed that this morning. Appreciate those who give their time and talents to lead us up in the worship of our Lord. This morning I want to read from Ecclesiastes chapter 12, verses 9 through 14, if you want to follow along. In addition to being a wise man, the preacher who also taught the people knowledge, and he pondered and searched out and arranged many proverbs. The preacher sought to find delightful words and to write words of truth correctly. The words of wise men are like goads, and masters of these collections are like well-driven nails. They are given by one shepherd. But beyond this, my son, be warned, the writing of many books is endless, and excessive devotion to books is wearying to the body. The conclusion, when all has been heard, is fear God and keep His commandments, because this applies to every person. For God will bring every act to judgment, everything which is hidden, whether it is good or evil. I'm going to attempt this morning to sort of start our, our process of wrapping up Ecclesiastes. We have a, a guest speaker coming next Sunday and then the following Sunday, so I'm going to try to, to wrap it up and then we'll come back if there's some loose ends that I think need to be tied up. But So we're going to spend our time in chapter 12. We're going to start in verse 1 and then we're going to jump to verses 9 through 14. And I'll leave the middle part for you to contemplate and give you notes on this. But it's interesting as I started thinking through back through Ecclesiastes and thinking back through some of the things that Solomon has taught us and, and helped us in. And one of the things that has struck me again is the fact that he uses the name for God, Elohim, over and over in this work 40 different times. But he doesn't use the covenant name Yahweh at all which is very telling because it tells us where his focus is. And all of these things, they all add up to help fulfill the message he's trying to convey to us. And it's interesting because the use of Elohim is going to focus on the sovereignty of God, that he is transcendent over all of his creation. And so it's interesting how he ends chapter 12, verses 13 and 14. He is going to talk about the fear of God and keeping his commandments and then God, this very same Elohim, is going to bring every act to judgment, everything which is hidden, whether it is good or evil. He's going to hold all of us to account. And so the focus, whenever he uses this name throughout Ecclesiastes, it's on the providence of God, the sovereignty of God over all of his creation. And really it is then the ultimate response for us is that we are to fear him and to worship him. And sometimes I, I know that there are certain things that we come across in Scripture that are a little bit sort of go against the grain for us, especially in this day and age with all the PC conversation that happens. There are certain things that we are uncomfortable with. We're uncomfortable with things like God hating sin. We don't like to think of God hating anything. We, we like to think of God as loving but we definitely don't like to think about God hating anything. His holiness can oftentimes be offensive to us, but that's just simply because we're sinners, right? And every time His light shines, it exposes something in our life. And I realize that even for us in the church that 
our fear of God isn't something that we talked about, nor is it something that we necessarily aim to cultivate in our life as believers, but it is supposed to be a part of our life. As I'm preparing for my daughter's wedding, I'm in Ephesians, and it says the exhortation that you are to be subject to one another in the fear of Christ. And it wants to be sort of diminished down to mere respect, but it's more than that. It isn't just respect. I can handle reverential awe. I can even handle reverence, although I think it's starting to slide a little bit on the scale. But there must be awe involved. And that is where Solomon is going to bring us at the end of this journey, is he is going to call us to bow our knees before God. And he is going to call upon us to surrender our will to his will. And so he is going to continue this thought that he started in chapter 11, in verse 1, that we are to live life and we are to glorify God. We looked at the beginning of chapter 11, the life of faith and also then the life of joy in verses 7 through 10. And it's interesting because as I go back and look at some of the things that Solomon has addressed, he has also already talked about the issue of being joyous in our life and also living a responsible life. These are things that he advocated for us, that we are to enjoy life and to appreciate the things that God gives us, that these are gifts, but also that we have responsibilities to live life the way that God wants us to live it. And this is the ultimate climax that he brings us to. But it's interesting that as we started in chapter 6 and moving towards 11, we saw that there were these clues that were dropped for us by Solomon, phrases that he used throughout that section coming into chapter 11, verse 6. And he used phrases like, does not know or cannot discover, to remind us of the fact that we can't know everything that God is doing. Which has caused me much to reflect, and not only on Ecclesiastes, but Job. I've been thinking about these books for some time. I've been reading through Proverbs for a lot of years now, and my dad got me started on that journey, but it's interesting. I used to say that Proverbs says that you need to embrace wisdom because it's great for life. And Ecclesiastes and Job says we tried that and it doesn't work. But what they really do is help us to understand the nature of Proverbs. And they help us to understand that Proverbs wisdom, it gives us skill in life, but it doesn't enable us to control life. And one of the things that I realized when thinking back through Ecclesiastes and even pondering on Job is that it isn't important if we understand what God is doing. It's just important that he understands what he is doing and we just trust him in that. I don't have to know everything he's doing in my life. I couldn't comprehend everything that he is doing in my life. Even David reflects on this in Psalm 139, that I can't even comprehend all the thoughts that you have about me, God. It's completely unfathomable. So if God were to reveal to me everything that he was thinking about my life and the lives around me and all that he was going to do in and through us, it would overwhelm us. It would consume us. We wouldn't even move. We would be so petrified to do anything. So as long as he understands, I just need to trust him, and it's all good, right? I just need to keep walking. Now, it's funny because I was thinking about Job in this. God's finally going to speak in Job 38, right? So all this time, Job's friends have been giving him advice through his suffering. Job's a great book because it's a book that deals with the issue of 
Why do the righteous suffer? And why do they suffer so much? And how do you handle that? But chapter 38, God is finally going to speak to Job. And not in this soft, quiet voice, but he's going to speak to him from a whirlwind. And he says to him, really how we translate it, most English translations, brace yourself like a man. In other words, put your big boy pants on, stand up, right? Man up. I'm going to ask the questions now, and you're going to give me the answers. Gird your loins is what he tells him. But here's the thing, Job can't answer the questions. He responds to God, indeed, I am completely unworthy. How could I reply to you? I put my hand over my mouth to silence myself. I have spoken once, but I cannot answer. Twice, but I will say no more. How am I going to talk back to God? How am I going to explain him how things work? How am I going to answer these things, right? This was a lesson that Job needed to understand. He learned something in the process of his suffering. And also we've learned this from Ecclesiastes, that God isn't required to give us a reason for why we go through trials. He doesn't answer to us. Sometimes in my life I cry out, why God? <laughs> As though somehow he has to answer to me. Why are you doing this in my life? Why are you taking me through this? Solomon emphasized the lack of our knowing, but he says this must not diminish our joy and must not prevent us also from working hard and diligently. We need to keep sowing that seed and they leave the outcome to God. Although there are uncertainties in life, there are certainties in Job, and Solomon has given us plenty of examples on how to live our life. So although he sort of keeps reminding us and doesn't let us to, to forget the fact that we don't understand everything about what God is going to do in the present and in the future. The conclusion is this, we need to fear God and we need to please Him in everything that we do. That's all i got to worry about. I don't need all the answers. I don't even have all the right questions most of the time. I just need to do what I know He wants me to do and leave the rest up to Him. Because He's God and I'm not. So he takes us then to the urgency of decision. And this is chapter 12, verses 1 through 8. And we're not going to go through this whole section. But this is it in a nutshell. Pursue in life. Remember your creator. Redeem the time. Reverence God and resolve to keep his commandments. Now I'm going to apologize because I'm going to talk about elderly and old age and all that stuff. But I only do that because Solomon does that, right? So if he goes there, I'm going to have to go there. He, he says it, I've got to say it. But these are things that are good for us to weigh and to evaluate. And in this section, he is going to develop what he's already started in chapter 11, verses 9 through 10. And he's going to talk about the advancing age and death. But it's interesting to me that his focus is going to be on the young. Notice chapter 12, verse 1. Remember also your Creator in the days of your youth. Before the evil days come and the years draw near, when you will say, I have no delight in them. So the exhortation is primarily to the young, but for us who are older, there's lessons to be learned. And again, he returns to this thought that death is the impetus for life. We spend a lot of time ignoring it, and Solomon doesn't want us to ignore it because it reminds us of who we are. It reminds us of our, of our impermanence to this world. It reminds us of our frailty and our mortality. We're not here forever. 
And this is not the end of what God is doing in our life. But sometimes when we're in the midst of suffering and difficulty and trial and tribulation, we think this is all that there is. We get so focused on the thing that we're going through that we forget there's a big picture. And this isn't the end of it all. I have to remind myself of this. Because I can do this even in my own life. The things that we go through as we age and the things that come upon us and the things that we have to deal with, it has a way of drawing us in and it has a way of focusing us so minutely on the things that we are going through that we forget about the rest of life and we draw away from life and we isolate ourselves and that's never healthy. And we find ourselves so caught up in the moment of just trying to get by rather than asking God, what can we do to serve your kingdom while we're here? How can I make the most of my time? For the young, the question is, how, how do they live now in anticipation of the fact that old age is going to come sooner than they think? They think they have forever, but they don't have forever. Before you know it, here you are. You're getting married. Before you know it, you have kids. Before you know it, they're all grown and gone. Before you know it, right? You're in the retirement home. And what about those of us who are older? How do we graciously accept the challenges of the aging process and yet still serve God? So I used to go to the home right across Main Street. And I love this because two Sundays a month I would go there with my mom. And I would preach. And my mom would play the piano and lead us in hymns. And most of the folks who were there, they had family, but family never came to visit them, most of them. Some didn't have family at all. And there was this dear sister who was there, and she came up one Sunday, and she said, I want to tell you I'm turning 90 today. And I said, I don't know if I should rejoice with you over that or not, man. I don't know if I want to be around here that long, to be honest with you, but amen for that. She says, you know, the Lord took my sight a year ago. I can't read anymore. So someone has to sit and read the Bible to me. She says, but I've discovered a new ministry. I can pray. So she takes me to her room and she has pictures of missionaries all over the world, all over her walls. And she can know who's where without even being able to see because she's looked at them for so long. But she just prays over all of those missionaries. And that's what she does with her time. And I was so humbled by that. Because I sat and thought, would I do this? Would I do this? Solomon wants us to think about these things. We can't hide from it. Every day there's a new ache. Every day there's a new pain. Every day there's something, right? There's new gray hair that wasn't there there before. I tell my kids, they gave it all to me. <laughs> This is why I shaved my head, because it doesn't show so much. How do we live right now in such a way that our life has meaning? That we're not caught up in the futility of life under the sun. Abraham Lincoln said this, It's not the years in your life that count, but the life in your years. That's profound, is it not? Because Solomon has reminded us in chapter 11, verse 8, You can live many years, right? But you can find yourself at the end of all of those years that it was empty of life. Because you didn't live it for the Lord. You didn't serve His kingdom in any way whatsoever. So He calls us to this responsible living. We need to remember and redeem the time 
figure out life sooner rather than later. For the young people, this is for you. There is an afterlife. Man is not meant for this life only. There is a sense of denial of forever, and there's only a living for the now, and this is what happens for the young, and they need to realize that they are not here forever, that there is something beyond this, and there is an accounting that is going to come. You can't, and I ask people, this, unbelievers, to think on this fact because it is completely inconceivable to me that there is incompleteness with all of this design. In other words, it's inconceivable to me that God would spread all over the world, all of these people, all of these lives throughout all of history, and yet at the same time that there would be no completeness about it. In other words, that there would not be a finishing. In other words that there is something that we are going to have to give an account for. Man is a responsible being. And sometimes we want to live this way like somehow we are exempt from the consequences of the things that we do. But how can you actually think that you can live through life, do things, and not think that you're going to have to answer for them? How is this possible? But somehow the world wants to, to walk along thinking this, but they know that this isn't true. You know how they know? The moral outrage we hear all the time. As perverted as it is, I have to see the positive in that. They're outraged about something. They're saying that there's a violation of a standard, and we recognize that, and there needs to be an accounting. So I say to them, okay, heed your own words. If you acknowledge there's a standard and you acknowledge the fact that someone has violated that standard and you acknowledge the fact that there needs to be an answering for that, how can you say that there isn't going to be an accounting in the end? That you will not have to answer for your life. There's going to come a time when everything is going to be settled. And the question for us as believers, are we preparing ourselves for that day? What will the account be that I give to God? Will he say, well done, my good and faithful servant? I can worry about everybody else, but it's really my life in the end that I'm responsible for. We can sit there and point the finger at someone else for what they're not doing, and they're not doing, and they're not doing, and they're not doing, and I can completely miss me. What am I doing? How am I living this out? So the basic command is to remember, and it is never too soon to submit to the lordship of our creator for the young people, Understand this, it is never too early to start serving the Lord. But remember God and submit to His Lordship is the exhortation that comes in chapter 12, verse 1. And you'll notice that most English translations, we have it reworded again, picked up in verse 6. Remember Him before the silver cord is broken and the gold bowl is crushed and the pitcher by the well is shattered and the wheel at the cistern is crushed. This is all talking about the approaching of death. But he returns to this thought, remember God. And the reality of this, and we have to understand this phrase, when Solomon uses it, he's not just merely talking about the fact that we need to think about God, although we need to think about God. Nor is it merely calling us to have God in our memory. It's not what this phrase is dealing with. It deals with how do we regard God and how do we respond to him. It means to act decisively on behalf of someone. Derek Kidner, a well-known Hebrew scholar, said this, 
To remember Him is no perfunctory and purely mental act. It is to drop our pretense of self-sufficiency and to commit ourselves to Him. In other words, this is a figurative expression for obeying God and acknowledging His Lordship over one's life. And so as he comes to the end of this whole section and he ends this entire work with verses 13 and 14, he's going to spell out what it means to remember God. It isn't just merely to have some cognitive remembrance of God. It is to be obedient to God. It is to call to mind who He is and what He expects of us and to respond in obedience to that. Respond to God your Creator, chapter 12, verse 1. I find this very intriguing that this is the exhortation. Remember also your Creator in the days of your youth. Which I have to ask myself as I came to this section. Should the pot ever talk back to the potter? What right do I have to question him? Paul asked the same question, right, in Romans chapter 9. What right do we have to question his sovereignty and what he does? And this is the issue that he is going to prep us for, and that is for reverence. Reverent obedience to God. This is a way to a life that is worth living. This is a worthy life. A life that is bowed before God, that is surrendered to His will. So Solomon is going to help us to understand that we need to say no to evolution. Say, well, that's sort of basic. You would think, you would think, right? And some might ask, well, does it really matter what you believe about creation? The answer, absolutely. Absolutely. This is beyond me. I've sat with scholars and had debates and and the fact that they would let go of Genesis 1-1 and the literal interpretation and understanding of that text, which is abundantly clear, it is beyond me. Which reminds me, it's not an issue of intelligence. (laughs) Because my conclusion after having a discussion with one of them is you're awfully smart, but you're really foolish. Because you don't see the outcome of this. I mean, just look at the testimony of the Old Testament over and over. We're reminded of the fact that God is the one who created everything. And so therefore, we have to respond accordingly as his creatures to our creator. And this is Solomon's intent right here as he brings us to the climax. Fear God and obey him. Why? Because he made you. By the nature of who he is, this is what is demanded of us. It's a given. Creator, submission. Enough said. But somehow we have a problem with this. Somehow we struggle with these things. The question of origins is a significant question in life. This helps us to understand where we came from and where we're going. But it also says a lot about our accountability. And this is why the world wants to turn their back on God and to deny the fact that God created everything and the fact that it is abundantly clear in everything that He created. They don't want to be accountable. They want to ease their conscience. They want to remove the guilt from their life. They want to have their gay pride parades. They want to delight in their depravity. They want to celebrate their sinfulness. They want to do these things. And the only way they can do that is if they turn their back on God. And deny the reality of the fact that they must give an account, even though they know deep down inside they will. This is why they have to be so flamboyant. This is the why it's so loud. 
This is why it's so colorful. You see, they're trying to drown out their own consciences. They know it's sin. So the answer to the question of origins gives us an answer to a greater question is, who controls all of this and by whose rules do we play the game? And the answer is God. So it is vital for us to hang on to Genesis 1.1. We cannot let that go. But Christian colleges are letting it go. Seminaries are letting it go. I mean, they're training pastors in schools that have rejected Genesis 1. How do you do that? That to me is like liberal theology. If you reject all supernatural things, then how can you talk about theology? I'm not a smart guy. <laughs> but I see the holes in all of that. It's a huge issue for us and we need to hang on to that. And so Solomon says, listen to me. You're the creature. He's the creator. There's an amazing relationship. We're not mere animals. The beasts are not our kin. Some animal rights people, they want us to think that we're on par with the animals. No, that's not how God designed us. We're the crown of his creation, although fallen. But we can be restored in Christ. He is the one who breathed into us his breath of life. It is he who will take it back from us and it will to him return. When we die, notice chapter 12, verse 7, then the dust will return to the earth as it was and the spirit will return to the God who gave it. <laughs> he is the living God. He shares his life with us. He didn't have to do that. And all the things that we have in life are gifts from him. We have no claim on them, do we? It's like Paul in 1 Corinthians. How do we boast about what we received? But yet we do it all the time. And we act like it's ours and we control it. And Solomon says, look, you were made and you were made for a purpose. His purpose. You don't define reality. You don't define meaning and purpose. He does. Solomon says, recognize the brevity of life. Youth equals opportunity. You are younger today than you will be tomorrow. <laughs> Every day, one step closer, right? As you live day by day, life seems to spread, speed so rapidly by, and it seems so brief. Someone has well said, just about the time your faith clears up, face clears up, your mind begins to go. One minute I'm popping zits, next minute I can't remember words. This is how life is. We're here today, gone tomorrow. We're a vapor. It's not going to last forever. That's what he does in verses 2 through 7. And I leave that for you to ponder because he uses very picturesque elements to talk about the pursuit and the, and the approach towards death and the aging process. But he exhorts us to respond now. Don't wait to live. Live now. But not live for yourself. Live for God. The epilogue comes then in verses 9 through 14. Eternity and the eternal, all-knowing God makes every matter matter. 
It's interesting because he ends with this thought in verse 14. For God will bring every act of judgment, everything which is hidden. Just think about this. From the time of Adam and Eve through every generation, every human being, he is going to call them to account. That means he knows it all. Right? Is that not amazing about our God? He is unfathomable. I can't even wrap my mind around it. I say it, but I don't get it. He not only knows the things that we all see, we do. He knows all the hidden things, all the things we keep secret from everybody else and our hypocrisies. So I tell my kids, don't worry about whether I'll find out. God knows what you're doing. I don't have to be there. And just so you know, he will let me know. And you know what? He does. He does. But that's our God. It's the amazing thing about our God because he has so many thoughts about us. Thoughts of care, love, compassion. But also of scrutiny and evaluation. He knows us inside and out. So the preacher is going to faithfully drive home the message of truth for us. And there are some lessons to learn here. And quickly we'll go through this. This, is, this was hard for me. It's like test. Do I do my job accurately? You may have to fire me after this. So verses 9 through 10, he deals with the issue of what his role was. And I find it interesting that verse 8 he ends, Vanity of vanity, says the preacher, all is vanity. So that was his theme statement. He ends there. So these verses stand outside of that. In other words, what really matters is God. And he takes us to life beyond the sun. But he's going to talk about his role in communicating God's truth. In addition, verse 9, in addition to being a wise man, so there's a prerequisite. The preacher also taught the people knowledge. And he pondered and searched out and arranged many proverbs. The preacher sought to find delightful words and to write words of truth correctly. Accuracy. Precision. This is what should go into every message. This is the burden. This is the burden. This is what I feel every Sunday after I leave here till the next Sunday. And it goes on and on and on. Finding the right words, the correct words, saying exactly what it's saying, but nothing that it isn't saying. The goal is edification. For God's people to grow an understanding of who God is. Accuracy. You know, there's a lot to tell about a preacher based on the Bible he uses in the translation. You can tell whether or not he's serious. Is it a literal translation? Does he desire to know the word of God accurately so that he knows God accurately? So that he teaches God accurately? Or is he just merely trying to relate? Because one is more man-driven, the other one is God-driven, right? Preacher's set task is set in three words for us. The word, first word is pondered in verse 9. It's insightful observation, meditation, analysis. The other is searched out, delightful or diligent investigation and then arrangement, putting it in order. The first word that he uses here, pondered, it's, in a way, it's an interesting word, it's a rare word and it means weighed. It is to be careful in evaluation, indicating his honesty and caution and balance. Handling the text accurately. Weighing everything, balancing everything. 
There needs to be a thoroughness and a diligence to it. Not only that, but you need to arrange it. This points to the skillful orderliness of his presentation, and it reminds us that there's an artistic element to it. Finding the outline, putting it together, and all the points and all of that stuff takes work. This is why Paul says in 1 Timothy chapter 5 that those who labor to the point of fatigue in the Word of God, they are worthy of double honor. If you're doing your job right, you're going to work. You're going to sweat. Sometimes you're going to bleed. It's going to be a lot of tears. It's a lot of time spent on your face. Because there's a lot of time when you're crying out to God, I don't understand. And I need to get it and I need to apply it to my life before someone can turn around and right, teach it to somebody else. That's why Ezra, to me, is one of the great examples. Ezra 7.10, he set his heart to search out the Word of God, to apply the Word of God, and then to teach the Word of God. You can't teach it till you've done the other two. This is a part of the burden. Solomon goes on, he says, the impact of, of the, the preacher and his ministry, applying God's Word, His wisdom, to stir people to action... To drive home God's truth, you can preach it, but you can't make them do it, although you can try. It's interesting the terminology that he uses here. In verse 11, the words of the wise men are like goads, right? This is something to use to, to prod along the oxen. Stubborn animals don't move very easily. These things are painful. Well, what does this say about the ministry of the Word? Sometimes it's painful. So if you're really doing the Word, the ministry of the Word, and you're really handling it the way that you're supposed to handle it, then there isn't going to be this psychological ego-soothing pep talks that you get on Sunday. It's just not going to happen. Prosperity preachers, they've given up the goads, and they've just sugar and spice and everything's nice, right? It's all about prosper, prosper, prosper. But here's the thing about Scripture, and especially going through Ecclesiastes, conviction of sin, the need to change our behavior, the way that we live our life, making people feel uncomfortable, right? It's all necessary. I don't know about you, but I've been all uncomfortable going through Ecclesiastes. If I'm honestly asking myself the questions and challenging the way that I'm living my life, it's not some sort of psychological soap bubbles that comes, right? And it's not mere sanitation. It's not just washing, cleansing the outside. It's about sanctification, the purification of the inside. That's painful. That hurts. So if I stop being honest with you from the truth, then you need to get rid of me. Find somebody else. Because if I coddle you, it's not doing you any good. And it's like I tell my kids, I'm only expecting of you what I know is in you, what God has put there. So he has set the standard. And he has set the standard with his word. What I'm calling to you is what he is calling you to. He's your God. This is what he expects from you. And I'm only asking you to do what I know you are capable of doing. But then I have to turn around and say the same thing to myself. Because <laughs> it's easy for me to say to them, you need to live how you're supposed to live, but what about myself? 
And what would the evaluation of our kids be of our lives if someone were to ask them, so what's your parents' spiritual life like at home? What would they say? The amazing thing is that he talks about the word of God and there's so many truths that he lays out for us. One of them is for the unity and authority of God's wisdom. There's but one source, one shepherd, verse 11. We're just under shepherds. That's all we are. He's the chief shepherd. To him, we have to give an account. That's my fear. All the time, that's my fear. One of my boys asked me the other day, do you you still get afraid? Yes, I'm still afraid. Every Sunday, I'm afraid. Every Wednesday, I'm afraid. Every Friday, I'm afraid. Even when you're teaching the kids, even when I'm teaching the kids, I'm afraid. Because I'm accountable for every word that I say. So I say to young guys in seminary, you better be sure this is what the Lord wants for you to do. That's why the word is so powerful and impactful. accomplishes the master's purpose. The main message of the preacher, fear God, obey his commandments, since you will be held accountable. Summary of the lesson, he draws this conclusion. Simple to living a purpose-driven life, whatever you want to call it. Purposeful life. Just fear God and obey him. It's that simple and it's that complex. Bow the knee. Solomon's counsel, this is for everybody. This isn't just for me. This isn't just for my life and my children. This is for everyone. This is the whole duty of man, to fear God and obey Him. It's that simple. It's that simple. The supreme and total accountability that's going to come from God, for God will evaluate every deed, including every secret thing, whether good or evil. Nothing will escape His scrutiny. So many want to let go of this stuff. But it's so vital for us to know. Doctrine of hell is diminished. Fear of God is let go and not preached. Fear of God is not declared. It's interesting, Romans chapter 3, at the long list of things, right? There is none who do good, not even one. And he gets all the way down to the end. And this is the exclamation point. They do not fear God. Zeisler, he ends with this thought for us. Great thought. He says, Solomon asked all the questions and looked squarely at all of life, its hopes, dreams, joys, sorrows. And in the last analysis, he declares that we must cease asking questions and worship God. Our most important choice is to bend our knee before God and receive answers from Him. What an ending. Amen? What a book. If I was a glutton for punishment, I'd go right into Song of Solomon. But I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to do that. We will start Philippians soon after. Let's pray. Father, we're so thankful for your goodness to us. For all the abundant gifts that we have through you. The life that you share with us, Father. The joys and delights that you give us. The things that you enable us to experience. Father, we're so grateful to you for all of these things, and we sing your praises. For all that we have in Christ our Savior, 
we just rejoice. So much we don't understand, but thank you for the knowledge that we have right here, right now. Thank you for the things that we do comprehend and the things that we don't, we just entrust to you. Our desire is to be found faithful in the things that you have for us. That we will live responsible lives, but we will also take joy in the life that you give. That we will work hard and diligent, that we will be sowing seed by day and by night because we don't know what the outcome will be. May we never pass up an opportunity to do ministry. May we not be quick to move on to the next thing in our schedule for the day when we need to stop and talk to someone. To impart some truth to them. To either lead them to salvation in Christ or to help them grow in the joy of their faith in Christ. May we redeem the time. For the days are definitely evil. May we be willing to be taken advantage of for the sake of your kingdom. May we give to those who ask. May we turn the other cheek. May we love our enemies. May we bless those who curse us. May we pray for those who persecute us. May we rejoice when we suffer for your name. May we find great honor in being called Christian in a world that is mocking us and laughs at our belief that you are the creator of all things. that you are a great and fearful God, that you are a jealous God, and that you will share your glory with none other. Because only you are worthy. May we reflect that in our life this week. May people see that in our attitudes and the ways that we behave. May our children see us passionately in love with you. Our one holy desire is to be consumed by you. To bring honor and glory to your name. May they fear you with awe and reverence. May they draw close to you in humility and humbleness. May they not stand before you, Father the young, and beat their chests and declare how amazing they are. May they fall on their faces before you and recognize that you are their God. May we all tremble. For in your presence, 
without Christ and without your spirit, we are completely undone. To you be the glory forever and ever. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen.